Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any... Hey, you guys asked for it. You want... It's not like one of those bars I used to hang out in. It was a nice bar, right? So he walks up to the maitre d' and the maitre d' says, uh, you can't get in this bar without a tie on. And I go, guy needs a drink bass. He goes, I, I don't have a tie. Come on, you let me in. He goes, I'm afraid you have to have a tie on. So the guy goes, ooh, 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 I think I got one in my car. So he runs out to his car and he doesn't have one there. But he looks down and there's some jumper cables, right? So he's a quick thinking guy. He puts on those jumper cables, ties a nice Windsor knot. Kind of, he walks back in and goes, come on. Guy has to give him an A for effort. So he goes, ah, Come on in, but don't go starting anything. Ooh. <laughs> that was my tribute to you, John. <laughs> oh, did you guys, did you guys go to the karaoke last night? Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid that I missed that. I went home and saw my wife, my wife Kathy. She's a good Al-Anon. She's a very, I, I love her dearly. We're sitting there talking, and I, uh, I said, you know, Kath, I, I, I love you so much. I really appreciate you putting up with me for all those years and all the years since. Uh, you know, what, but if I was still out there, if I was still out there drinking, would you still love me? She said, yeah, I would. I'd still love you. I'd miss you, but I'd still love you. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to somebody. I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Bob Hart. Well, it's great to feel this energy. Uh, I'm going to ask... Uh, Ken B. and Charlotte R. to read the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. My name is Ken. I'm an alcoholic. 12 steps. Hi, everybody. I'm Charlotte Rogers, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, Ken and Charlotte. Well, I've got to tell you that uh, a short period of time ago when I called this New Yorker expecting a good New York brogue, and I get this British accent, I was real shocked. I do want to clarify that in your bulletin it uh, says uh, Claire, uh, <laughs> Lorna C. and it's actually a K. So for your information, just be aware of that. Uh, I don't know much. I'm anxious to hear. I know enough about Lorna to know that she loves this AA program, and I'm anxious to hear her story. So, Lorna. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Lorna, and I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) I remember, you know, going to my very, very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, long before I knew that I belonged here, and I heard this chap get up, and he said, uh, my name's Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. And I remember thinking to myself, well, we don't all want to know. Keep some things to yourself, you know? Uh, Does your mother know? Um... Anyway, I'm delighted to be here. This is my very, very first visit to uh, Tennessee. And um, 
You certainly speak very differently. And uh, I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, this morning, Kim took me all over Nashville to try and find a Western shirt. I'm, I really want one of those Western shirts, you know, with those pockets here and the three buttons here and all that. And uh, apparently, I'm about 20 years too late. But um, that's the story of my life. I... Um, you know, several, uh, the, earlier this year, well, I, first of all, I want to kick off by thanking um, Don for selecting me to speak here. I'm certainly not very worthy. I was kind of surprised when I got chosen. There are so many phenomenal speakers in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, whenever I used to first qualify, I used to think to myself, well, you know, I hope I can say something that will help them. And um, I used to end the talk with saying, well, you know, I hope I've said something that will be useful to you. And um, now I realize that I'm up here because the group has given me the opportunity to be helped by having myself reflected, and uh, thank you so much for the privilege to be a speaker here. Um, earlier this year, I was in the Sinai, in the Sinai Desert, that is, and um, I wanted to go somewhere, and the way to get there was on a camel. And so I got this Bedouin to take me, and we're out in the middle of nowhere, as the Sinai is in the middle of nowhere, and... Um, <laughs> He hands me the rein, and he says to me in broken Arabic and English, the camel knows the way. And he walked off. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know. And uh, he disappeared over a dune. And I'm screaming. And, and the wind is blowing my voice back into my face. And he's gone. And I, I didn't want to yell too loudly in case it meant in camel language, giddy up, full speed ahead. Uh, so, I was, uh, and you know, camels are very, it's not like being on a horse where you can jump off and jump on again. I mean, they're very tall and they've got a reputation as being mean. And um, so I'm up there on top of this camel and I was terrified. I mean, the Sinai is not like an American desert. You know, there's no little animals scurrying about. There's no birds flying overhead. It is dead. And uh, I am so frightened and terrified. And believe me, you don't know anything about the third step until you've been in the Sinai on a camel. <laughs> and uh, I... Uh, and most camels, you know, have wonderful, romantic, exotic names like Rashid or Mohammed or Salim or something like that. Mine was called Bob Marley. And uh, so, so there's uh, Bob Marley and I in the middle of the Sinai. And I'm so frightened. And I, I just can't believe that this has happened to me. Do you know? And... Uh, then the thought comes, of course, of course I'm here, of course I'm in the Sinai. Isn't this where God always brings his favorite people to talk to, you know? Isn't this where God spoke to Moses and Jesus was in the next desert won over, you know? And uh, 
I, uh, he's going to talk to me. I know he's going to talk to me. And uh, so I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the message that I can bring back to you. And uh, two and a half hours later, Bob Marley and I arrive at our destination and we've just been plodding on and uh, we got there and the only message I got was, you know, I really should have worn a bigger hat or um, I've gotten a little suntan, but I went through the whole spectrum of, uh, you know, of confidence and terrible fear, turning it over, spiritual grandiosity and then the ordinariness of the journey and the arrival. And it's sort of, I go through that same syndrome, whether it's on the subway in New York or on a camel in the Sinai, wherever, I go through the same thing all the time. I have not learned not to be grandiose, sort of think that there's a special message for me. Anyway, um, I think I'll start this story off at the end of it. I, um, to about two years ago, just over two years ago, when I was 15 years sober, I hit a wall. I went into the most dreadful, dreadful pain I have ever experienced in my life. And mine came about by the end of, what else? A relationship. <laughs> and, you know, who hasn't had the end of a relationship? Ho-hum, yawn-yawn, right? But for some reason or the other, this was my Waterloo. For some reason or the other, this particular relationship tacked into something. I don't know what it was. It wasn't the biggest event that ever, you know, the relationship wasn't the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. But for some reason, through this loss of this relationship, I was ready to feel these feelings. And I never knew, I mean, I was the one that ended it too, by the way. Um, I never knew what pain was about. And if someone had said to me, you know, you're going to be in a lot of pain, they did say to me, you're going to be in a lot of pain if, when you end this relationship. I was like, yeah, 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 well, you know, no pain, no gain, and sure, I'll be a little pain, but it'll be all right, I'll do some 12-step work, and, you know, I'll be there, and I'll read the big book, and all that stuff. And uh, <laughs> I, it was like I was sitting on the beach, you know, in my lotus position, and... Um, waiting for the waves to roll in and this tidal wave came and I landed five miles inland on a thorn bush without my clothes on. I had no idea what pain was like. No idea at all. And um, I feel that this event I was able to tap into subterranean fields of pain. All the pain that I had never allowed myself to experience through countless lifetimes and all the pain that I had ever dished out to others, I got to feel. And a lot of the pain was due to God seemed to just fly out of my life. And I have had a program of a diet of two and three meetings a day for my entire sobriety. I've allowed myself to be sponsored. I've sponsored. I've done service. I've used the tools, I've done whatever it was I do. I'm in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. I had everything seemingly in order. But um, this pain, this thing came at me. And I don't think that there is any protection for... Um, I now see it as the love of God. But um, 
you know, the big book flew out the window. The steps flew out the window. My sponsees became my sponsors. I couldn't help at all. I'm very friendly with Mother Teresa and I went off to India to be with her and uh, I started to be jealous of the lepers and the homeless. I mean, I started, I, I mean, they felt, it felt like they were better off than I was. I just, it was unbelievable, this crisis I went through. And I was so grateful, you know, I, a woman came into my life who had seen me the entire time I was uh, in the program. And you know how these people sit and watch you and you never see them? And all of a sudden, in, at the time, they seemed to come out of the woodwork. And she came out of the woodwork for me. And I called her every morning. And she never once said to me, why don't you read such and such? Why don't you do a fourth step on such and such? Why don't you do this? You know, you're not grateful. Nothing did she say to me. All she said to me was, Lorna, you're doing so well. You're really doing terrifically. Just remember to breathe. And it was like, oh, yes, breathe. I've got to remember to breathe. And, um, you know, I really learned. I learned through that crisis in my life. that, And that pain, that excruciating pain, lasted for 17 months. And I really learned that my program is not of my doing. It's God's sobriety, and God gives me sobriety, and it has nothing to do with me. And you should have asked me to speak a few years ago. You should have asked me to speak three years ago, because I could have told you everything you wanted to know, and I could have told you exactly how to do it. And uh, But now I really don't know. And um, when I was going through this, a priest said to me, very nicely, he said to me, now... Now maybe you understand God's will and not your will. He said, even your spiritual life cannot be your will. And it was a very, very big comeuppance, you know. I do not know how you have to get sober. All I know is how it happened to me and how I got sober through the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I really don't know anything else but the fact that I've been given a lot of grace. My sponsor told me two things she never wanted to hear out of my mouth when I came in the program. One of them was, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to make phone calls. It's hard for me to be friendly. It's hard for me to, whatever, end the sentence. She said, it's hard for us all. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is not for the faint-hearted. And she said, another phrase I wasn't to say was, I deserve. I deserve to be happy. I deserve a nice relationship. I deserve a good job. I deserve, end the sentence. She said, honey, if you got what you deserve. So, I, um, this I talk about this uh, crisis a lot in my life because it really, truly ha has been the biggest thing that has ever happened to me. And, uh, you know, when I hear the speaker this morning and, and other speakers here that have lived through, I mean, real life crises, it seems in its circumstances very minor. But for me, it was, you know, and I've been through a life. I mean, who hasn't been through life? You know, I've buried people, I've miscarried twins, I've lost all sorts of things in the program, in sobriety. But this, for some reason or the other, <laughs> this got me. Um, but God gave me a great gift. 
while I was going through this crisis, and that was I remembered at 15 years, 16 years sobriety, I remembered my last sip of alcohol. I had always remembered my last drink, but I didn't remember my last sip. And I'd like to share that with you. I was, um, it was one summer morning in 1976, in August of 1976, and I woke up, and I'd had a girlfriend staying with me overnight, and um, it was Sunday morning, and I couldn't wait to get rid of her. And finally, she left. And uh, I went downstairs to the local deli, and I bought myself a container of Tropicana. And I came back upstairs, and I mixed myself a jug of Tropicana and, or, and vodka. And I poured myself a tumbler full of this stuff, and I drank it. And as it went down, and it hit that empty stomach, and that wonderful, wonderful feeling as it came back up through the tributaries of my body and hit my soul, and my soul went, oh, oh, it's all right, it's all right. That wonderful feeling of comfort invaded my whole body and my whole being. And hot on the heels of that was this thought of, you know, Lorna, what an idiot you are, the sort of woman you are, and the sort of lifestyle you have. Why don't you do this every morning? Why don't you have a drink every morning? Now, I had been drinking in the morning for a long time, but I had never called it a morning drink. And the Chinese have a saying, they say that the beginning of wisdom is to call something by its correct name. And I had called it gallery openings, I had called it toasting the bride, I had called it um, brunch, I had called it, um, I'd lived in Spain for a while, and I had cognac in my, I had cognac in my coffee every morning, and I called it being continental, I called it um, on the beach, I called it all sorts of things, but I didn't call it a drink in the morning. This, I knew, was a morning drink. And as soon as that feeling of, you know, rationality came over me that I should do this every morning, I think I could not put the glass down. I could not release the glass from my hand and put it down. And I got into the shower, and I was showering, holding the glass away from my body. And um, something snapped in my mind. I realized, I equated it, I identified it with cigarette smoking. I used to be a very heavy cigarette smoker. And someone thinks that's amusing. <laughs> and... Um, I was never one of these smokers that could take a puff of a cigarette and put it in the ashtray, like this woman in the front row, I'm always fascinated, put it in the ashtray and just leave it, and then pick it up and take another puff and put it in the ashtray and leave it. Once I lit it, it was in my fingers the entire time. I could not release it until I put it out. And then, I love to have it all around here, you know, and then I got myself a cigarette holder so that I could keep it in my teeth the entire time. And, um, I, and I have done every disgusting thing imaginable with cigarettes and to smoke cigarettes. You know, I've thrown them in the garbage only to fish them out the next morning and dry them in the oven because they're full of coffee grounds. You know, I've, I've pulled them. 
I've uh, smoked other, you know, people have got some hacking cough and I've taken drags of their cigarettes. I mean, I have done, you name it, I've done it with cigarettes. So suddenly I identified that I couldn't put this drink down. And I think God looked down from heaven and in great mercy thought, oh boy, you know, we better get this one fast. And that afternoon, it's a long story, but that afternoon I found myself in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had been around Alcoholics Anonymous for a little while. My husband had finally walked out the door. And I thought it was the most fascinating thing he'd ever done. You know, it really caught my attention. And um, I, you can see I belong in Al-Anon too. I, um, I really wanted to get this guy back. You know, so that I could torture him a little more. And, uh, and I was intrigued as he got away. And, uh, so I hadn't pulled enough legs off, obviously. So, so I can see there's some very sadistic people in this room. <laughs> So, um, anyway, but he left and um, a girlfriend of mine, for reasons of her own, had gone to a meeting of Al-Anon and she said to me, while we were in the sauna one night, we're sitting there stark naked, and she said to me, you know, Lorna, I went to this meeting of Al-Anon last night and all the women sound just like you. And as soon as she mentioned alcohol, something clicked with me and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was an alcoholic. And... Um, <laughs> So I went along to a meeting of Al-Anon so that I could learn about this chap, you know. And um, then I went to two meetings of Al-Anon and I thought, I want to get the real meat and potatoes. So I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And opposite where I worked, there, and I was fascinated with AA. And if anyone in the room, I think that is the thing that qualifies people for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not where you hid the bottle or where you drank or anything. I think it's people that can come to meetings and listen to about other people trying to kill themselves and waking up in blackouts and vomit and things like that. And we're like, oh, really? You did that? And we're so interested. And then we, we want to go to another meeting and hear another one of these god-awful stories. And... Then we want to go to coffee shops and listen to some more of it. And I think that's the thing that qualifies us as being very sick. And so, I, um, I went along to, so anyway, this, this, it was a bar opposite where I went. Actually, it wasn't a bar. It was far more classy. It was a cocktail lounge. And, um, opposite where I've worked. And I would go there after work, and because I love to drink on an empty stomach, and um, then it would be 7.30 and I'd say to the people I was with, look, it's 7.30, I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'll be back. And um, I would go up the road to the meeting and I'd come back, and anonymity to the wind, I'd tell them exactly who I'd seen, exactly who was there, and I'd say, well, you'd never guess who is an alcoholic. And um, little did I know. Anyway, I, um, so 
I knew about AA, and that particular afternoon, this uh, August 1st of 1976, I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was taken to a meeting by Divine Grace of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I heard a woman qualify, and she told my story up to where I was at that moment, and then she went on. And that wonderful thing of identification happened. I knew I was there, something related to myself. So I crossed over into the other country. I knew I was in AA for myself. I knew I wanted to be here. I knew I had to be here. And um, so just because I was in here, though, just because I was in here occupying a seat, didn't mean to say that I was in AA. There are plenty of people that are in here. I had lunch with some friends today, and we were talking about this very same thing. Just because I was in here occupying a seat did not mean to say I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are plenty of people that are in here and occupying a seat, and they're not necessarily here. And there's plenty of people that are in here and they're drinking, and they're members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what it is. Something happens in the heart, something that says I have a desire to stop drinking, and I don't know what that is. I can't judge that for anyone else. Anyway, I can tell you my story. I was in here taking up space, and um, but I wasn't in AA. And nine days later, I went on a... Now, I always used to end my story there. I thought that was my last drink. And through this crisis, I remembered this other agenda to my story. Nine days later, I went down to Washington on business. And when the business was over, I was with... A, I went and had dinner at a friend's house with one of my associates. And we had this very casual dinner in the kitchen. And there were about maybe five or six of us, I suppose. And a glass of wine was poured for each of us. And I didn't know enough to say, no, thank you. I didn't know enough to, even if it was poured, to be able to say, could you please take that away? I didn't know enough to put it away. I thought the whole thing of Alcoholics Anonymous was to learn how to resist alcohol. I thought I was in here to learn how to feel comfortable around alcohol, to learn how to say, no, 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 your drinking doesn't bother me. It's fine, go ahead, it's all right. Meanwhile, I'm noticing every last drop you're drinking. Um, but I thought that I didn't understand the wonderment and the mystical nature of surrender. I didn't, I thought I had to learn how to be <clears throat> around it. Now, there are eight million stories in the Naked City. This is just one of them. But I am in Alcoholics Anonymous to learn how to feel uncomfortable around alcohol. I'm in here. I go to 10,000 meetings to learn how to be, when I'm around that stuff, ha ha, that's the stuff I have to avoid. That's the stuff I do not pick up one day at a time. When I'm around alcohol, I want bells to go off. You know, I am not in here to learn how to have a platonic relationship with alcohol. I am not in here, like, to say, oh, doesn't bother me. It's all right with me. It is not. Alcohol and I had an incestuous, deadly dance together. And it won. And it, I am powerless over alcohol. I have a disease called alcoholism. And I do not toy with that stuff. For me, fiddling around with alcohol is like tickling the neck of a tiger. It purrs for a long time. And then it's like, swat. 
and I'm finished. And um, But I didn't know that. I still wanted to resist it. And I was able to resist it through the salad. I resisted it through the main course. I resisted it through dessert. And then we're sitting around having coffee. And then this glass is no longer a glass of wine. This glass is this container of sacramental liquid. And it's red and beautiful. And it's not alcohol. And it starts talking to me, much like the serpent must have talked to Eve. And it said to me, you know, Lorna, you're always so bloody dramatic. You know, what are you doing in Alcoholics Anonymous for your simple problem? You know, why do you always go overboard? Your problem is you need to lose 10 pounds. You know, why don't you read? You've never read Faulkner. You know, why don't you improve your mind? Why don't you do something for yourself? Why are you always blaming me? Aren't we terrific together? Aren't I always with you? Don't you always feel great when we're with get together? Your problem is you guzzle. Why can't you drink one or two drinks like a lady? Why do you have to have seven or eight or the bottle? Why can't you just sort of space yourself? I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm your friend. And I said, you know, you're right. And I reached out my hand and I picked up this gorgeous goblet and I took a sip of wine. And whereas nine days before that alcohol had hit my soul and made me feel, oh, this time it hit my soul and my soul went into total terror, absolute terror. And it was as though there were these enormous doors, maybe 80 feet high, made out of cast steel, about 10 feet wide. And they were released from their moorings. And I heard this shuntering as they came slowly, slowly across the film of my life. And I knew that they were going to clang shut with this irrevocable, irretrievable thud. And I was going to be on one side and you were going to be on the other. And no amount of clawing and screaming and yelling was going to let you hear me. And I knew I was going to be cut off forever. And you know, it was not my body that came into AA first, and not my mind, it was my soul that came in finished. Because when the soul dies, that's it, folks. <laughs> that's it. It is over. Out. And I was so terrified. I was, I didn't understand what was going on in Alcoholics Anonymous, but some deep, something deep-seated in me knew that this was my life, that this was its life, not my life, its life, the life of my soul, this thing that's eternal in me, this thing that's needed for others, knew that it was dying. And it was the most awful, awful feeling I can remember. 
And I only felt it again when I was 15 years sober and I had this crisis in my life and I felt that same terror of God uh, out of my life. And um, <clears throat> I came back the following day on Amtrak to New York and all the way back I cried and I begged God to please let me back in to stop those doors from coming across my life. And I... I screamed out and I said, you know, I don't understand this day at a time stuff. A day at a time isn't right for me. I, it's no good for me this day at a time. I need something bigger than a day at a time. I need a covenant forever. You know, in the day I drank. Uh, obviously I can't do this day at a time nonsense. You know, give me a covenant. I will do anything. I will go to any length. I'll be a fool for you. I'll do anything. Just don't cut me out. Don't cut me off. And God took me at my word. And I um, came back into New York. I threw my bags in my office and I went up to a meeting called Lenox Hill. And Lenox Hill in New York has a certain reputation of being sort of the silk stocking meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where all the bankers and the lawyers and all those sorts go. But you know something? They're drunks just like the rest of us. Anyway, I went in and I sat down in the front row. And this fellow came up to me and he said to me, I think God wanted to test me straight away. He said, you. He said, you can't sit there. He said, Harriet and... Henry, whatever their names were, he said, have been coming to Lennox Hill for the last 20 years and they always sit in that seat and you can't sit there. And I don't know where this doormat got this from, but anyway, he was the sort of fellow that, the doormat meaning me, um, he was the sort, I mean, I don't remember much about him, all I remember was that he was wearing trousers with little spuming whales embroidered into his trousers. And... Um, I uh, I don't know where it came from, but I said to him, I don't care who sits here, I'm here now and I'm not leaving. And uh, next month that will be 18 years ago. And I haven't left. I have sat in different seats, however. And um, I want to make, I don't know anyone in this room, so I don't, uh, I know, I know a few people, but I don't know where you all sit. And I just want to make a plug for sitting in different seats. I think it is, my disease lives in rigidity. My disease lives in, I always do it this way. I always sit in this seat. I always sit on this side of the room. I always eat this for breakfast. I always do this. Oh, this is the way I am. Anytime I say those sort of things, I've narrowed my life to about yay big. And um, I, I, have, I have cut off the possibilities of my life. Anyway, so there I sat, and now I was in. Now I was in AA. And my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous was, was my journey, and it was very interesting. I, um, I couldn't understand how you knew I was new. You know, I, I walked in, this dichotomy. First of all, I thought in one part of me, I thought I added great tone and class to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I thought you took a look at me and you said, oh, thank God she has arrived. 
thank God she is among us because now we can hold our heads up high. We don't have to be... Someone identifies. We don't... We don't have to be quite so anonymous anymore because she is among us. Meanwhile, in reality, what was happening was you were patting me on the back in you know, that Alcoholics Anonymous fashion and you were saying keep coming back. You're in the right place. And on the other hand, you know, from one hand feeling that I added great tone and class, on the other hand I was terrified that you were going to kick me out. You know, I heard that you were members of Alcoholics Anonymous and I thought, well, you know, in order to be a member, I'm going to have to qualify. And I thought that somehow I was going to be taken off into a room and there were going to be these guys there with, you know, praying hand cufflinks or, um, you know, um, AAs embroidered into their ties or something like that. And they were going to ask me, well, exactly, how do you make a martini? Do you know? And uh, they were going to ask me all these alcohol questions, which I was not going to be able to answer. And they were going to say to me, hey, sister, you know, I mean, we're a busy organization and uh, we notice you always sit in the front row and you eat an awful lot of cookies. You know, do you mind? You know, come back when you've got something to say. And uh, so from this grandiosity to this thing of, oh my God, I hope they don't kick me out. You know, I'd walk into a room like, oh, this. And if someone had come up to me and say, who do you think you are? And we'd be like, oh, I don't know. Who do you think I am? I'm not... <laughs> My dress was a dead giveaway. I had, you know, I sort of wondered how you knew. I had been wearing the same dress for the last three months. I was festooned in jewelry. I had jewelry all over the place. Stripped naked for for x-rays, I had nine pieces of jewelry permanently attached to my body in places, I wonder if I've discovered it all even now. I, um, I, uh, I, I was, I had gobs of makeup on and I, you know, this whole thing of bathing, I mean, I would bath and I think, oh my God, I gotta wash this whole thing again tomorrow. And it was just too much. And I couldn't take the makeup off. You know, I was like Elizabeth I. I just put more on each morning. And um, I felt like I was disappearing. You know, and people have told me that I have large eyes. And I wore half an inch of coal around my eyes because I thought you couldn't see them. And I guess really I felt like I was disappearing. You know, the, the, the spirit was dying and I felt I was disappearing. And I looked like a badger. I mean, I... I it's a wonder I didn't have arrows pointing, you know, eyes this way, you know, on my face. I had very long hair, and most women have long hair so that they can wear it up and dress it and put combs in it and do wonderful little things with it. This hair drove me insane, and I wore it in tight braids across the top of my head, you know, because I wanted a hairstyle forever. I wanted this hair... I wanted my hair done. And, um, you know, the, uh, 
you know, most, uh, I thought I looked like, you know, I, it wasn't a hairstyle with like little wisps coming out like Heidi or anything like that with little curls. It was severe. I looked like Mrs. Danvers at the top of the staircase, you know? And, um, I wondered how you knew I was new. And, uh, I had this very, very highfalutin job. I was, uh, I worked for, I was in the art business, um, in an art auction house. And I was the first art, um, female, blah, blah, blah. I was the first woman art auctioneer in America. And I had this very prestigious kind of job. And I was going really done. And the only reason I kept this job was this accent. It got me, I got away with murder. And, um, but, you know, um, I had taken to shopping in thrift shops. You know, thrift shops, second-hand clothes you can buy. Well, I originally I would go and nip into these stores because I'd find a, you know, a nice bag or something like that that would accent an outfit, like a 1930s bag or an unusual jacket or something. Well, now I was dressing out of thrift shops because I couldn't bear to face a rack of clothes in a department store. I just couldn't make up my... It was, it was too overwhelming to me. Anyway, one day where I worked, this friend of mine, this associate, came up to me and took me aside and very nicely, very sweetly, not meaning to embarrass me at all, in the way you would kindly to a patient, she asked me, Lorna, why are you wearing a maid's uniform? my God, and I realized, you know, it had the little collar and the cuffs and the belt that matched, and I had bought this uh, maid's uniform because I thought it made me look neat and tidy, and, and I was desperate to look neat and tidy. I was desperately trying to keep it all together, and um, anyway, I wondered how you knew I was new, and... Um, I came in the program and I got a sponsor and uh, I thought my sponsor knew what she was doing. You know, she had four and a half years of sobriety at the time and I just thought she was it. And uh, and she was it, and as far as I was concerned. And I still have that sponsor today. And uh, whatever she told me to do, I did. And I was pretty outrageous. I, kept, I think I thought that I was going to get kicked out at any moment. And... Um, I uh, was always doing things with my legs at meetings. I, um, I uh, studied ballet. I was studying modern ballet all the time, and um, I'd twirl into meetings and do things. And, and um, uh, I would always be sitting in the front row with my feet up on the speaker's table and, uh, and stretching and doing things, you know. And... Uh, People would go to my sponsor and say to her, would you tell her to do, and would you tell Warner, and she'd say, uh-uh, I'm trying to keep that woman sober, you tell her. And uh, no one ever said a word to me, and I was allowed, and you know, I'd hear people speaking up, and I still am not very patient, and people would speak up, and I'd say, that's not true, and I'd yell out from the room, and 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 do all sorts of things. 
And I remember once walking into a room, and you know, I always came in while they were reading the preamble. I mean, I never came in when they, and I came in, and I, I, of course, the first winter I was in the program, I couldn't wear a coat like everyone else. I had to wear a cape. And um, I'm flying down center aisle with my cape, and the ashtrays are flying and everything. And uh, the chairperson said, well, we'll all wait till Lorna gets settled. Um, but guess what, folks? I'm sober. And I stayed, and you put up with me, and you let me stay here, and here I am. And my journey in sobriety has been <laughs> very, very interesting. One of the things that's been interesting about it is that everything I have ever judged anyone about, it's usually the very next thing I'm doing. And uh, if ever I've gossiped or, or said anything about someone, it's usually the very next thing I'm up to. And um, I have had uh, all sorts of things happen to me in sobriety. When I was um, five months sober, I got very, very fascinated with the life of Christ. When I was, um, uh, and it's been a, fa a fascination and a passion all my sobriety. And when I was ten months sober, my father died. And I was able to go home and uh, do the appropriate thing that a child does, a daughter does. I was able to be there with my mother and bury my father. And when I was 11 years sober, my mother died. And I remember going home and um, dressing one morning for my mother's funeral. I was wearing a black velvet suit and I was in a room that I'd been in many, many times and looking out over a field that I'd looked over hundreds and hundreds of times. And I thought to myself, I am dressing for my mother's funeral. And it was so powerful for me. I'm, I am putting on these clothes because I am going to my mother's funeral. And I remember thinking to myself, I am sad, but I am grateful that it's this way around and I can do the appropriate thing and that my mother isn't dressing for my funeral. It's right that I dress for my mother's funeral. It's right that I bury my parents. And um, I've had a lot of, uh, you know, when I was nine years sober, as a lot of women in the program, I had a difficulty with my mother. It was a difficult relationship. I left home when I was 18 and came to America. And it, it, my relationship with my mother, my mother, I am in Al-Anon also, my mother was my first qualifier. And um, it was uh, a hard relationship. But when I was nine years sober, I uh, amends came on to me. I thought I'd done the ninth step, but amends really came up to me that I owed a lot of deep amends. And I, I had this great longing for my own mother. I've made a lot of other mother images, my sponsor, uh, other women in the program, Mother Teresa, all sorts of people, women that were very close to me. And uh, I suddenly wanted my own mother, my own flesh and blood. And I didn't know, I mean, how do you say to your mother, I'm sorry? 
I mean, I knew it had to be something bigger than that. And I, what I did was I spent time. I went back to England and I spent time with my mother. I sat with her and I went over the family album and I tried to tell my mother all the nice things I remembered about my childhood, all the pleasant things that I remembered. And I had to dig because I was so used to blaming. I was so used to looking at what they hadn't gotten right for me. And my parents lost a little girl when she was three years old before I was born her name was Pamela and I had never visited Pamela's grave she was over on the other side of London and um, I this particular visit when I uh, was making my amends to my mother I went to find my sister's grave and it was very difficult it was completely overgrown but to cut a very long story short I found it and it was covered with weeds I had to tear the, the vines off this huge stone and I didn't know that it was a family burial ground and there were all these my grandparents and people that I'd heard about that were buried here and the very last entry was my sister's name and her dates and at the bottom it said God took our darling daughter to dwell with him above. And I stood there and I realized that 40 years before, my parents, as young parents, had stood on that same spot, bereaved and totally at a loss, burying their daughter. And for the first time, I realized that they weren't in this world just to be my parents. They had had their own life and their own tragedy, and their own things to overcome long before I came on the scene. And you know something that happened to me? That got through this disease, compassion came in. Compassion started. And I honestly think that that, one, one, that that is one of the things I strive for in the program, and that's one of the things that Alcoholics Anonymous is. Its great root is compassion. And um, I was able to go home uh, to see my mother after that visit. And um, my mother said to me, did you find the grave? And I said, yes, I did. And she said, did you cry? And I said, yes, mother, I cried. And she cried too. And, uh, you know, my mother cried. And I realized her pain was just as immediate as it had been 40 years before. And I was able to sit there and hold my mother, hold that woman and have her flesh against my flesh and look into those eyes very closely. And um, and it was my amends to my mother. And I was so grateful to AA. And when I left my mother, I thought to myself, Phew, well, that's done, you know. I hope she dies now. I hope she dies so that my last memory of her can be great, that I made my amends to her. Because, you know, the disease is always working. And on the heels of doing something great, it always wants to smash me. And I thought, because that amends wasn't real. It was just a fluke that that happened. Well, you know something? I saw my mother about five times again after that. And each time the relationship was better and better and better. And my mother never stopped drinking. My mother died of chronic alcoholism. And, um, but the relationship was so different. And it was so different because I was different. I was different because I'd come here and I, and you taught me. And you know, Alcoholics Anonymous hasn't given me a thing. 
Alcoholics Anonymous cannot give me a thing. Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual program given to me by God. And if it could give me something, it would mean that God created me incomplete to start with. And it hasn't given me a thing. What it's done is it's allowed me to let go of what I no longer need. I came into the program and you said to me, you know, you do not have to drink. What do you mean I don't have to drink? What am I going to do at this wedding? What am I going to do at Christmas time? Of course, and you said, well, this is what we did. And you told me how you did it, how you got through the wedding, how you got through Thanksgiving, how you got through tragedy not drinking. And then I said, then you said to me, you know, you don't have to be angry. Oh, well, yes, I do. When the bank teller screws up, you have no idea. You know, I have to be angry. And it's my personality. And you said, no, 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 this is what we do. This is how we do it. And it, little by little, I was able to let go of all the tinsel I had put on. The tinsel I call my personality. The tinsel I call this thing that's so important to me. Me. This is the way I am. And... um I, uh, my adventures, I've been around the world, I, I, uh, was, um, I went to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta in India, and I ended up setting up AA in Calcutta in India, in uh, AA and Al-Anon, and I was back this year in, in, actually last year in December, and it was AA's 10th anniversary in Calcutta, and that was just fantastic. I didn't go for that, actually. I went because they told me Mother Teresa was dying, and if I wanted to come and see her, I better get there fast. And I got there, and I'd never seen her looking better in my life. And um, so... Um, Anyway, I stayed and it happened to be the anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous while I was there. So that was end of Al-Anon, which was very gratifying. I've um, uh, been on vaccination programs in West Senegal, thinking I was going on a vaccination program in West Senegal. And I find out that there was a nun there that was in the program two years sober and hadn't had a meeting in God knows how long and was driving every other nun in the convent absolutely berserk. So... Um, I managed to get her, convince her to come home to uh, Canada and get her, and these other sisters were so thrilled to death, let me tell you. Anyway, one of the, um, uh, I'm almost uh, at my time, but one of the things I hear lamented in AA and by alcoholics all the time is this fear of intimacy. They say, I'm terrified of intimacy. And um, and I think, I've said it too, I'm frightened of intimacy. But you know, it's not true. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we're the most intimate people I know. When Jesus was on his cross, there was crucified with him at the same time two thieves, two fellows. And actually, I don't think they were thieves, they were zealots. And um, one turned to him and he said to him, Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus did not turn to him and say, Hey, listen, can't you see I'm in the middle of a big spiritual happening here? You know? I mean, I can see you're a mess. And I hope you, I hope you make it. But me, I'm trying to concentrate. This is my big time. This is what I came into the world to do. And I've got to, 
I've got to be quiet and be centered and concentrate here because I'm going to be here for three hours and um, and then I'm ascending to the Father and uh, I hope you make it buddy you know this was Jesus's big moment this was his final hour on earth and he reached out through his heart to this man he didn't know and intimately with great intimacy he said to him this day you will be with me in paradise you will be with me in paradise and when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous you did not say to me oh you look a bit of a mess but uh, you know we hope you catch on we're in the middle of the sixth and seventh step actually and um, you know we're very spiritual and um, we're getting centered in here and we're concentrating on God and sister <laughs> I hope you make it um, you didn't you said to me this day you can be with us in paradise these are the steps we took sit down have a cup of coffee and don't drink for the rest of the day and the intimacy you included included me intimately in the very thing you were doing you didn't say tomorrow you didn't say you know in relationships we're always about I need my space God doesn't say to me Hey, Lorna, you asked me for that yesterday. I mean, you know, all right, I'll keep you sober today, you know. He doesn't say, you know, I need my own space. It's an intimate, intimate relationship. And we in Alcoholics Anonymous are very intimate with each other. And I believe that ships are safe in the harbor, but ships aren't built for the harbor. And I can be very safe in Alcoholics Anonymous but I meant to go out there and to risk my life and Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the ability to be able to leap before I look I do not have to say oh my god am I going to have enough money is it going to be alright am I going to have a roof over my head are they going to like me is it going to be alright am I going to have enough clothes I don't have to worry I can, if I'm in the third step, I'm able to leap. I can go. I can move. I can trust. If I'm not drinking and I'm working these steps, I can trust. I, um, and I believe that to choose the sure thing is treason for the soul. To always go with what I know is going to be safe is a killer. You know, I didn't drop acid because I wanted an ordinary day, you know. <laughs> I, I don't want it ordinary. I'm not ordinary. I've been risen from the dead. I'm not ordinary. You might think I am, but I'm not. I'm very unusual because I've been raised from the dead. There's something very different about me. And if I... I don't want to stay, it's very easy to stop and to stay here and to say, this is enough, this is as far as I go, it's very secure here. You know, they say that the next level to us is the angel realm, and it's very, it's very beautiful, 
But it's very difficult to move. Even when you're in the angel realm, you've still got to keep going. It's very difficult to move because it's so comfortable. And it's very easy to feel comfortable in AA. Nice job, nice relationship, everything comfortable. But still that thing to move. We have a yearning in our hearts. And to choose the sure thing is treason for the soul. When Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he said, I am not going to move until I understand. I am not going to move until I get enlightenment. And he sat there. He did not choose the sure thing. The sure thing was he was a prince of the realm. He could have gone back to his father's palace. He could have had anything he wanted. And he sat there. And he sat there. And he faced all the forces of Mara came at him and tempted him. And he sat. And finally he understood. And he put out his hand and he touched the ground and the ground gave witness to him. And because of that man, because of what he did, I have an opportunity to follow that path. I have an opportunity to, because he didn't choose the sure thing, I have another mansion open to me that I can see. And 500 years after Buddha, Jesus was on his cross. Jesus did not choose the sure thing either. Jesus could have gone back to Nazareth and he could have lived a life and gotten married and had children and done that, but he didn't. And I'm sure he didn't sing, wasn't on that cross saying, oh, this feels terrific, you know, I mean, I know this is right. It was not the sure thing, but he went and he went forward in his passion and, and because he did that, because he did it, I have an example today. I have a choice. I can see that life. I've got a choice. And another mansion has been opened up to me and another dimension opened up to me. 2,000 years later, in 1935, there was a man called Bill Wilson. And Bill Wilson was in Akron, Ohio on a business venture. And the business venture hadn't gone well. And he was in his hotel. And he was in the lobby. And he heard the sure thing. And the sure thing was the bar down one end. And there was music. And there was people talking. And pleasant sounds and familiar sounds. And the sure thing was, I can get relief from this god-awful day that I've had. That's the sure thing. It might not last, but I can get relief in this moment. And Bill Wilson turned. And in that turning, in that turn, he opened the door for me and millions like me. He didn't know what he was doing, but he didn't choose the sure thing. And he went into the lobby and he picked up the phone and he made a call. And because he made that call, I'm standing here today with 18 years of sobriety almost. And each one of you in this room has not chosen the sure thing. Each one of you has not drunk today. And I want to thank you for going to meetings, for calling your sponsors, for getting the alcohol out of your house, for using the tools of the program, for risking your lives, and for not choosing the sure thing. I want to thank you for your sobriety. God bless us all. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.